Welcome to the First Mass Podcast. This week, Pastor Becca continues the legacy series out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 16. She's teaching about the leadership of the church and how to lead well, passing the baton from one leader to the next. Let's listen in as she preaches. Good morning. We are in the fifth uh, week of our series on legacy. And when I think of the Apostle Paul passing on his legacy to Timothy, the imagery that comes into my brain is passing of a baton. And so I decided to um, look up just baton passes. I don't really watch a whole lot of track and field, but the idea of passing on the reins to your teammate who's coming up behind you to continue on the work uh, that you've already laid the groundwork for kind of seemed a little fun to me. So I went to uh, YouTube and I watched several different, um, several different video clips on different baton passes, and I learned a couple of things. First, I learned that if you are not watching closely, you might miss the baton pass. These people are so skilled, their timing is perfect, they have practiced this, that you may not even see it if you're not paying attention. I also learned, I watched a lot of the 4 by 100 relay races, um, which is where you have four people running one length of the track all together, so you have four little sections. Um, I learned that you have a designated passing zone. And so I always thought that if you were getting a baton passed to you, that you would be waiting right there, waiting for somebody to come, you grab it, and then you take off. In the 4 by 100 this designated passing zone, both runners are running, and they're sprinting. It's not like there's just one jogging. Um, They are both sprinting, and the person just puts their hand behind them, and the baton magically appears, because they are so practiced. Um, I thought this was really interesting. I was impressed time and time again, And then I saw this YouTube clip that had the words, worst baton pass and catastrophic relay handoff in the title. So of course, I uh, clicked on that video next because I was curious. I was so impressed by watching all of these. I learned that this video was from the 2019 World Championships. So this was not high school or college. These are people that were representing their country and they have been doing this. Um, There were Olympians, among these world championships, and this was the final race. So they had already had to beat out other teams to get there. And so I was really curious what this was going to look like. And so the first runners take off, there's eight teams, and they pass on the baton to the second person, and nothing looked catastrophic to me. Then the second person passed it on to the third person, and still nothing looked bad. And so I was thinking, maybe catastrophic baton passing is uh, not that catastrophic to the normal eye. Um, And then the third runners go to pass off the baton, and these runners are neck and neck. And this is a Olympic qualifying race. So, I mean, these people are trying to get to Tokyo 2020 Olympics. And the team that I'm going to talk about, I'm not going to tell you the country, but the team that I'm talking about goes, they're both running in the allowable passing zone. The runner puts her hand back. The baton is there, but just not where it needed to be. And she is trying to grab it. She can't get it. And they both get out of the passing zone before the baton is passed. And so they stop and all the other runners are completing the race. By the time that they get back, they go to back to the starting passing zone, the beginning of that, to try again. And at that point, the race is already done because all the runners have already made it to the finish line. But they tried again. They muddled through it after trying two more times. They finally got it, and the runner made it back to the finish line. 
I thought it was interesting because um, I was thinking that it was pretty commendable for them to continue to try passing this baton. And you learn at the end that uh, they were disqualified the minute that they went out of the passing zone to begin with. So it was just them uh, making sure that they could show that they were uh, still able to do it. Uh, without the proper baton pass, the next runner cannot carry on in the race. So we are in the middle of a legacy series where we are looking at 1 Timothy. And this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy is his protege. Um, the Apostle Paul, he was one who at first in his life, his name was Saul, and he opposed anybody that was um, preaching Jesus Christ. He would persecute them. Um, he was very well known to be somebody who did not want the good news spread. And then Jesus got a hold of him, and he ended up realizing that this good news cannot be hidden. He cannot hold it back. He needs to go tell people. And so he started going and telling people and planting churches, and people became, became Christians and became uh, in a relationship with Jesus. One of his first missionary journey, his first missionary journey, he went to the hometown of where Timothy was at. So it's believed that Timothy became a Christian because of Paul's work in that town. And by the second missionary journey, Timothy was with Paul, and they were going around and they planted a church in Ephesus. They didn't stay very long, but at the third missionary journey, they went back to Ephesus, and they spent a couple of years in Ephesus, and they continued to, um, to build up that church and plant that church. Uh, Church tradition tells us that at the end of the book of Acts, um, Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and it is likely that he was released from um, his imprisonment, that the trial, tri trial went well, and he ended up visiting churches again after the fact. And so the tradition tells us that Timothy and Paul made it back to Ephesus during this time, and Paul continued on and left Timothy in Ephesus as his representative. So we learn in this letter that Paul has been unable to visit Ephesus again. And so he writes this letter to continue to encourage Timothy and impart wisdom so that he can continue on the mission and the legacy that Paul started. So we are in chapter 3. So we're 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. Um, a majority of this chapter is dealing um, and addressing with church leadership um, in Ephesus. And there's a call to remember who, what the message is that they're preaching, which is Jesus Christ. So we're going to end with that. But we're going to start with church leadership. So this is what it says in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. 
They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they were appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. So I've read a couple of things that um, I'd like to address before we move forward. Um, Paul is listing the qualities of the church leaders and deacons, and he mentions that they are to be men who are faithful to their wives. Um, we must remember that this letter was written by real people to real people, um, given in a, a real context, in a real time period that would have shaped their world and their understanding of the world. Here in the first century, um, leadership was dominated by men. Um, that was the worldly standard was to have male leaders. Um, some commentators and Bible translations translate this passage using the words overseers or church leaders instead of using the male pronouns. So instead of saying he must do this and he must do that, some um, translations have decided to go with church leaders must do this or overseers must do this because the idea is that the heart of what Paul is saying is likely that he's generalizing it here. Um, instead of having to share and list every possibility of every person's situation and the way that the context was and the Greek grammar works, it is likely that he is just generalizing it. Um, it might seem a little strange to generalize something as being figuratively male, um, but I was actually thinking back to the end of the 20th century, which was 23 years ago, so it's not that long ago, um, and we use the words confidently, mankind, chairman, and we would say himself if we were trying to refer to a man or a woman. Now, um, we opt to use the language of humankind, chairperson, and oneself. This inclusive language speaks more to the heart of what it is that we're trying to say. Although I will say that if you hear somebody who says mankind, never would you think that they're trying to exclude women and children. You would just take it as they are talking about humanity. And I think that that's what's going on here. I don't think that Paul is excluding women. I think that he is speaking generally. I also don't think that this passage is saying that you must be married or have kids in order to prove that you are qualified to be a church leader. Again, I think this is a generalized statement to cover that if you have a spouse, then you need to be faithful to that spouse and only that spouse. If you have kids or children, then you must lead your families well. I, I find it interesting because uh, Bible tradition shows that Paul is an unmarried man with no kids, and Timothy in the Bible is an unmarried man with no kids. So I don't think that he's saying you have to do that to be a church leader because he would have excluded himself and Timothy with that kind of a statement. The other puzzling translation piece that I want to address comes in verse 11. So this is what it says in the NLT. In the same way, their wives must be respected and, not, and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. 
Uh, the Greek word that's translated here as wives is the exact same word that you would use to translate the word women. Um, some translations have opted to translate this as women. Others have translated it wives, like we see here. Um, there is no word in the Greek for deaconess or women deacons, so it is plausible that that is what he's talking about. And this wouldn't be uh, an unheard of situation to have women in leadership because there were women in leadership roles in churches that Paul was a part of. In Romans 16, Paul greets his friends and he specifically names Phoebe, Phoebe, a deacon in the church in Centria. Paul says that she has been helpful to many, especially to him, especially to him. He mentions his co-workers, a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, who have risked their lives for Paul and who, will, and who host a church in their home. He also mentions Nympha in Colossians, who hosts a church in her home. So it would be nice to go back to the Apostle Paul and say, hey, what did you mean by this statement? But what we can know is that he is speaking to a group of women who are in a leadership role of some kind, whether it be wives or women deacons. So let's get back to it. So now in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is passing along instructions to Timothy on how to lead well. So Paul gives this list of um, qualifications, and there are three different groups that he's talking about here in church leadership. And I have this handy slide that I think you're going to see. Perfect. That lays it out a little bit easier for you to see. Um, I have opted to write the words overseers instead of uh, church leaders, as it says in here. Um, that's just because most translations say overseers, and that is what the word means, is overseers. Um, and then you have their wives um, or women deacons and the deacons. Um, to list some things that someone needs to do in order to fulfill a job requirement uh, makes me think that uh, it's a job description, right? Although these job descriptions look a little different because it doesn't actually tell you the tasks that they are fulfilling. So I went to uh, Indeed.com. I wanted to see some different job descriptions uh, of what it would look like because, like I said, this list looks a little odd to me. And so these are some job descriptions that I found, and I figured it would be fun to play a little game. So I have three different job descriptions, and I'm going to start sharing the duties. And if you know what the job is, go ahead and just shout it out. So the first one, you must answer, screen, and forward incoming calls. You must perform duties such as scanning, filing, and photocopying. Receptionist, yep. You must uh, receive visitors at the front desk by greeting, welcoming, directing, and uh, announcing them appropriately. That is a receptionist. Okay, now you guys know how it works. I want to hear you louder. The next one, conduct thorough pre-flight inspections. Operate aircrafts for various flight missions. Pilot, yes, and adhere to all applicable aviation regulations, safety protocols, and company policies during flight operations. Okay, we'll see if you guys get this one quickly. The first one is working with high steam machines, inspecting clothing for any damage, pressing and folding laundry, a dry cleaner, yes. So these are the different job descriptions I found, and they are showing tasks. They're showing the functions that somebody must do. Here, Paul is not doing that. Paul is not concerned with the tasks and the functions of these lists. Instead, I think that it was probably that Paul or Timothy and the Ephesians knew exactly what these people were supposed to do. 
Um, I don't think that there was any question about what the overseers, the deacons, and um, the women were supposed to be doing. Um, instead, I think that he was more concerned with who the leaders were, with their character. For Paul, in order to lead well, you must lead virtuously. It's interesting, if you look at the overseer list, um, that that list is not overtly Christian. Instead, um, you actually find a lot of moral philosophers of the day. Um, you see the same types of lists written at the same time that they were saying that you needed to do these types of things to be a good moral person. So for Paul to have written these things, it makes me think that the Ephesian leaders needed a reminder as to what they ought to have looked like. I think that they were probably doing the opposite of these things, and it was so important that Paul needed to write a letter to say, hey, look, these are the things, if you are going to be in church leadership, that you need to look like. Last week, um, Pastor Paul and Pastor Ryan were up here talking about chapter 2 in Timothy. And one of the points that they touched on was that uh, people in the church need to not be a distraction from the message of the gospel. And I believe that that concept is continuing on here in this chapter. Um, even though... The list is not particularly Christian. I think that what he's trying to say is you need to be an upstanding role model for people to listen to you. Because if you have lost, or if you have tarnished your witness, if people look at you and your reputation precedes you and it's not good, no one's going to listen to you. And so the message that you're trying to share is going to fall on deaf ears. The Apostle Paul's heart was for the good news to be spread. And so seeing and hearing about these leaders who were thwarting that mission was a really big deal for him. He reminds them that you need to lead in a way that people are going to listen to you. If the leaders are arguing with each other, if they're slandering others, if they're being unfaithful to their wives, making unwise decisions, being dishonest with money, drinking to drunkenness, acting violent, and lacking self-control, then why would somebody want to give them the time of day and hear them out? You've heard, I'm sure, many of you, the phrase that Christians are hypocrites. It's the same kind of thing that is going on right now. When you are preaching a message that you are not living out yourself, people are not going to want to listen. So for Paul, it is of utmost importance that they needed to lead and live by example. So even though this list is not particularly Christian, um, for Paul... Um, his understanding is how one could successfully live in this manner was particularly Christian. Uh, for Paul, he believed that no one could do these things on their own strength, and they needed the work of the Holy Spirit working in their lives um, and within them to be able to fulfill these. This is what uh, Paul says to the churches in Galatia, um, in Galatians 5, um, 19 through 26. It says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as, if I, ha as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. So you're going to see that list again, and if you can remember some of those things that were in the sinful nature list in Galatians and the Holy Spirit or Spirit-led list, you will see that there is a clear pattern here that these things that he's trying to say is that all Christians should be living like this. Um, I, I want to remind you of that real quick, that he is talking in 1 Timothy about church leaders. And I think some people might come and say, well, he's talking to church leaders. I don't really lead a ministry in the church, so that's just them. We have different standards. I can just kind of be in the pew and do my thing. Um, no, that's not what he's saying. In First Timothy, he's saying, yes, these lists are people that are leaders, and they have to be mature enough and have the, the relationship with Jesus to where they are acting like redeemed people. But believers, if you hear in Galatians, this is for all believers. All believers, when they say to the Lord, I am sorry for my sin. I recognize that I need a savior. I need you to be the Lord and king in my life. The Holy Spirit starts to work in your heart. That's not just for leaders. That's for every single believer. That you will start to see the fruit of the Spirit produced in your own life. Because we cannot do these things by our own strength. These are things that we do because of the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. And as we continue to lean in and press in on the Lord, he continues to transform us. So that's the first thing. In order to lead well, we must lead victor or virtuously uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Next, for Paul, in order to lead well, we must lead leaders. And what I mean is this. Uh, leaders are not meant to, live, to lead solo forever. Um, we need to come alongside the up-and-coming leaders, and we need to essentially pass the baton, allow them to carry on the mission, because the mission to spread the good news does not live and die with us, right? We need to remember that this is the mission of the church. This is not just the mission of you. And so if you are leading a ministry, if you are participating in something, look around and see who can you bring up. There are young people, there are people who are just becoming or beginning their journey in uh, the walk of grace and learning who Jesus is. Bring them up, bring them alongside you because this is what we are called to do as Christians, to go and to make disciples. Again, that's not just for leaders, that is for everybody. Paul writes this letter to Timothy to guide him in finding leaders who will continue the work of the Lord in Ephesus. Paul knows that he has been delayed in coming to Ephesus, but that doesn't mean that the work of reaching believers and non-believers just goes by the wayside. Paul knows that this is not about him. His legacy is not so that he can hold himself on a pedestal so that people can look at him and say, man, that is the man. That is the person that I want to be like. Instead, he sees himself as a vessel, a vessel to bring the good news. And although some people might look at Paul and say, oh yeah, you know, he's pretty cool, he is, but he is not, that is not his legacy. His legacy is to continue to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that he can redeem people, that he can bring hope, that he can take you out of darkness and bring you into light. 
An example uh, that I like to use in large groups when I've done some stuff in children's ministry is kind of like an object lesson that's physical that you can see. So I would take a a group, probably not this big because it's quite large, um, but what I would do is I'd set 20 seconds on the timer, and I would say to the the group that I'm going to go tell you a message, and I'm going to individually tell each and every person, and at the end of the 20 seconds, we're going to see how many people know the message that I have. So I would go to each person, and I would tell them the message, and I would only get to a small fraction of the room. And so when that 20 seconds was up, I would say, hey, what's the message? And a couple of people could say something like, Jesus loves me. Everybody else would just be sitting there thinking, I didn't hear. I don't know what that message was. So we would redo it, and this time I would say, I'm going to give you a different message. I'm going to go to some people, but this time, if you hear the message, I want you to turn around and I want you to share with the people around you. And when those people hear the message, I want you to share and turn with the people behind you. And so this time, in 20 seconds, the the message permeates throughout the room so quickly. And when I asked, hey, what is the message that I shared? This time, everybody could shout out something like, God is love, right? This is how we ought to think about leaders generationally. Paul tells Timothy, raise up leaders carry, to have them carry the baton to continue the message of sharing the gospel. Because if he only relied on himself, then so many people would not have ever heard the message, including us. We may not have heard the message the way that we needed to hear it. Timothy knew that he wasn't going to stay in Ephesus forever either. He was actually told in the second letter to Timothy to come and join Paul when he could. So he knew that he needed to follow this advice. He needed to follow this wisdom, raise up leaders, because in order for the church to continue and to thrive, new people needed to come up. New people needed to um, be leaders and share the message. So I said earlier that uh, we need to lead leaders, but I'm going to take it a step further. Um, Not only should we be looking for people that we can lead into ministry, um, we can't just select them, tell them, good luck, you're going to do great, and then walk away. Paul does not model that for us here. Um, That is not what he's doing. First of all, with Timothy, he spent time with Timothy. He mentored Timothy. Timothy and Paul served together. They did ministry together. They were in Ephesus together. They were a mentor and a mentee. When the time came for Paul to move on, he knew Timothy would be ready to lead. He gave him authority. He guided him and encouraged him, and he figuratively passed the baton. And even though Paul left, he was continuing to cheer on his teammate because they are on the same team with the same purpose and the same mission and the same end goal, to go and make disciples. Paul, after he left, checked in with Timothy. He wrote letters. He planned to visit. He was not just on a hiring committee or on a selection committee, selected him, and then moved on. He knew that even though Paul was selecting new leaders, or even though Timothy was selecting new leaders, uh, Paul would need to continue to invest in Timothy. And Timothy would need to follow suit and continue to invest in those who were coming up. We ought to take note of this and remember um, that we are tasked with a mission that's beyond ourselves. It's not just for us. 
not just in our own little corner, but instead we need to think about who is going to carry on the message of the gospel after us. And whoever it is, they can need continuous investment, guidance, leadership in order to take the reins. So in order to lead well, firstly, Paul says that we must lead virtuously with the help of the Holy Spirit. Second, we need to lead leaders and pass the baton while continuing to invest in them. And now lastly, Paul says, in order to lead well, we must lead with Jesus Christ at the heart of our faith. This is what it says in the end verses in chapter 3. This is verse, these are verses 14 through 16. It says, I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body, vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. These final verses really do tie in um, the last three chapters. Um, at the beginning of this letter in chapter one, we learn that Paul is sharing that false leaders have begun to infiltrate uh, Ephesians, or the church in Ephesus. Um, it says in verse four of chapter one that don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which do not help people live a life of faith in God. Remember, we are to be pointing people to God. We are, we are to be living in a way that we can point our families, point those around us to God, our coworkers, our, um, our acquaintances. He spends two chapters then giving instructions on how church folk ought to look, how they should conduct themselves in order not to be distracting people from faith. And then here, in chapter, at the end of chapter 3, Paul shares our core beliefs, which are found in the person of Jesus. This directly refutes the false teaching, and it reminds us that the church is the pillar and foundation of these beliefs. It is the responsibility of the church to preserve these deep truths by knowing and confessing who Jesus is, and by living out this faith in godliness. We are redeemed people. We ought to live as redeemed people. For Paul, your outward behaviors are a reflection of your inward beliefs, which means that the church folk, which are those that make up God's family, must look different from the world. We cannot carry on the legacy if we don't know what the legacy is. Um, and this is a big deal because God has chosen the church to be the pillar and foundation of truth. This uh, imagery would have been pretty relatable to the people in Ephesus because there is a temple there to the Greek goddess, or a Greek goddess, and it had 127 pillars. This thing was ornate. It was big. It was not meant to be hidden. It was not, you know, down in some little part of town that nobody would ever see. This was meant to be on display for all to see. So it reminds us that we as the church, if we are pillars and foundations of the truth of Jesus, then when people look at us, they should see Jesus. 
This wasn't necessarily the case back then. Like I said, you had leaders who, one, were false, sharing false messages and trying, or not pointing people to Jesus. You had people getting in the way. You had people who were distractions, people who were living in a way that people didn't even want to hang out with them or see them because they weren't even good people. Um, we need to remember that when people look at us, we need to reflect the gospel. So this is a call for us here today. Um, so my question is, just rhetorically, when people see you, what do they see? Or who do they see? Do they see Jesus on display? Or do they see something else? Paul ends with a summary of our core beliefs. Like I said earlier, it is Jesus. Jesus is God who left his heavenly throne to be born of flesh and dwell among his creation. What kind of God does that? A God that loves us, a God that wants redemption for us. It's our Messiah who died for us to make a way for us to be reconciled with God. It was because of God's great love for us that he came to save us. He came to save us while we were sinners. Sinners who couldn't save ourselves. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit in his, resurrect in his resurrection. He didn't stay dead. He overcame death by rising again. He is victorious, and this good news ought to be preached so that the whole world knows and has their opportunity to place their trust and belief in Jesus, because he came for everyone. He didn't just come for one or for some. He came for everyone, and he came to bring hope. He came to bring people out of darkness and into light. He came so that people could experience freedom from sin. He came so that transform or lives could be transformed. The declaration of the church is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, all for his glory. So Paul set out to instruct Timothy on how to lead well, and it all starts with Jesus. Let us not forget who Jesus is, for he is the center of our faith and the reason that we have life. And it's the reason why we should continue to share with people, because some people do not know what it feels like to have hope. Some people do not know that they are worthy or that they are loved. Some people do not know what it's like to live in a world of light. They live in a light or a world of darkness and of sin just continuing to entrap them. There is hope in Jesus. Um, we're going to pray and then the worship team's going to come back and we're going to sing just a little bit again of the last song we sang and it's a declaration of who Jesus is. So I want to remind you that the altars are open. If you need to just sit and be with Jesus, this is a good place. If you need to scream it out loud, scream the words out loud and declare who Jesus is. If you just need to sit there and let them sing those words over you, you can do that too. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. The gift of Jesus who came to die for us while we were sinners. God, you show how much you love us by creating a way to redeem us back to you, to make us right, to, stamp, to have that stamp of approval and say, this is my child. God, thank you for loving us and for pursuing us and showing us grace time and time again, even when we didn't deserve it. God, we, we thank you for the hope that we know we thank you for the way that we can live our life, which is to, as Pastor Ryan said earlier, when things are going on in the world, in our own lives, 
we can look and say, but God's got this. God is with me. I know I'm not alone. I know that God does not leave me or forsake me. God, thank you for your love, your continuous love. As we are the church, help us to remember that we have a truth to proclaim, a truth to share, that truth is Jesus. God, we thank you for using us, for giving us the opportunity to share with others. God, this week as we we go, I pray that you just lay on people's heart a name or a person or maybe a place where they can continue to share the good news whether it's a family member that they live with or an extended family member. Maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's an acquaintance. Maybe it's just, you know, the, the person who makes your coffee in the morning who just needs a little pick-me-up. Pick God, place somebody in our lives that we can go ahead and share and see them come into relationship with you. God, we thank you and we pray that the Holy Spirit continues to work in each and every one of us. We pray that we can continue to leave behind the life of the sinful nature that we can continue to live according to the Spirit. That you will fill us with love, with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God, continue to work on us. We are here and we are willing. God, we thank you and we thank you again for Jesus who is the reason why we stand the reason why we come, the reason why we rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the First Mass Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.